So we want to welcome you uh, here on the Wills Point campus. We also want to welcome those joining us online or also on our Edgewood campus this morning. Right, we're grateful that you're here. And as we begin our time together, I want to do uh, so with just a quick mathematical equation. It's not difficult. As a matter of fact, it's something that you and I can do in our heads. But I want to do it together and I need your help, okay? Here it is. Y'all ready? Uh, regardless of uh, your education, we ought to be able to get this one. One plus one equals two. two. It equals two, okay? Uh, it equals two. That has always been and always will be. That's a mathematical fact, okay? So here, let's try it again because Edgewood did not get it. So here we go. Uh, one plus one equals two. And that is true in everything in life except for this one thing, and that's called marriage. When it comes to God's math, one plus one equals one. Matter of fact, that's what we see in the uh, account of the scriptures. And today we're going to be in the scriptures talking about what it looks like to be one. Just as God was one with himself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God is calling us to be one with him and to be one with our spouses. Listen, this is a great theological message that many of us in this room don't understand, and certainly the people living outside in the world do not understand. And unless we can embrace what the Word teaches about this issue, we will continue to see difficult marriage trends both in the church and outside of the church. And so there is a great meaning behind this in which we will explore throughout the entire scriptures today. Matter of fact, we're going to begin our time together in the Old Testament in a book called Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 2. Now, our Bible is split up and composed of two different sections. One is called the Old Testament, which gives an account of a nation called Israel. Israel is God's people, and from God's people, he promises that there is going to be a person that will come that will bless all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all all heritages can be blessed by this person. And this person would be called the Messiah. And we would know that his name is Jesus. Jesus eventually comes. And in the New Testament, we see an account of Jesus in his life. It's called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first beginning books of the New Testament. And then from there, you see the Acts of the early church and the books of Acts. And then many letters and epistles written to various people and churches. That composes the New Testament. Our entire Bible points to one person, and that is God, His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit who aids His people and helps them live a life of godliness. Today, we're going to begin in the first book of the Bible in chapter 2, and we're going to see that after God created all things that we see and know, even things we didn't see and know, that God would find that His, his creation, the one that resembles Him most, created on the sixth day, mankind would need a helper. We see that account in uh, Genesis chapter 2 that uh, all the birds of the, the air, all the beasts of the field, all the livestock that roamed along the grounds, all of the fish of the sea and all the reptiles that slithered around are all created. Adam has taken time to name them all and then God realizes that his creation is alone and he needed a helper. And so we see an account of him establishing a helper for him in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. And it simply says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so Adam has a helper. Uh, you see in that account in Genesis chapter 2 that he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib and he fashions a woman from the rib and he says, she shall be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And Adam calls her woman. 
And this woman is a suitable helper and a helpmate for her husband. And now you see biblical oneness established not only between God and man, as Adam and Eve are living in the presence of God, they are a part of what's called the Edenic Covenant, which they are in the Garden of Eden. They are enjoying a relationship with God, but they also have a full relationship with one another. And they are one with one another. Why? Because God began an institution that should be celebrated for years and years and years to come called marriage. And you see this institution developed and created by God, calling that one man and one woman shall leave their father and mother and cleave together as one flesh. Matter of fact, Genesis 2, 24 says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become, say it with me, one flesh. So they shall become one flesh. It is two people joined together. And in God's math, one plus one equals one in marriage. And that's the picture that we see. In verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and they were not ashamed. What it means was is they had a great relationship with their heavenly father, the one who created them in his image, and they had a great relationship with one another. And they enjoyed all that God had in its fullness. They ruled over uh, everything that was in the Garden of Eden, along with all the animals, man and woman, the vice region of God are in a relationship with him, and it is heavenly. It is a picture of bliss and is an eternal state, one that God intended to have with mankind all of the centuries to go. But then you see an account in Genesis chapter 3 that something happened. And that was the one who is great and crafty and cunning, the one that we would call Satan. He comes to um, this woman named Eve in the garden and he asks this question. Hey, surely God didn't say that you couldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden. And she replied, oh, no, no, God didn't say that we couldn't eat from any tree of the garden. He just said that we shouldn't eat of the one tree in the midst of the garden, and we couldn't uh, touch it lest we die. And then he replies, oh, surely, I mean, surely you're not going to die. I I mean, come on. Like, I mean, he loves you, and he created you in his image. I mean, surely you're not going to die. I mean, that would, that, would, that would be so unfair. I mean, that, would, that wouldn't even be right of a God who loves you so much. And then he said, I bet the reason he doesn't want you to have it is because if you did, you would be like God. You would be knowing good and evil. You would have the things that he has. And I bet he doesn't want you to have that. And she began to ponder that idea. And she was already mesmerized by the fruit. And so she, she took it and she thought that, you know what, it, it would make one wise. It, it does look like it would be, it would be good for, for food and it would, it would be appealing. And so she took it and she ate and she gave it to her, all, her husband also who was with her in the garden. And then something happened. And in Genesis chapter 3, this is what it was. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. See, in this moment, something happened, and and it created a chasm between God and and, and mankind. It also created a a chasm between man and the woman. And the reason why is because when God originally created the institution of marriage and oneness with God and with one another, it was bliss. It was wonderful. They were naked. There was no shame. There was no recognition of sin or selfishness or any of those things. But when they took and they ate of its fruit, their eyes were open and they realized that they were now naked. And that Edenic covenant, that heavenly state, is now torn in half. 
in one fell swoop, one choice would bring consequences for all of the creation because the covenant is now broken. And they have realized that sin and shame and flesh and their conscience and the covenant-keeping love that God intended for himself, for, for his creation, and for one another has all dissipated and vanished in their midst. And then they did something. They went and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And then when God would appear in the garden, it says they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and man and his wife, they went and they did something. Say it with me. They hid. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. And here's what I want you to understand is that when that happened, they began to isolate and they began to cover their differences Because the Edenic covenant corrupted our relationship with God and with one another. And they became aware of their brokenness, of their sin, and apparently of their shame. Matter of fact, when they were naked and when they were not ashamed, they never looked in the mirror and said, you know what, I really need to go on a keto diet. You know what, I really need to shed some pounds. They, they never entered that thought. But from here on, it seemed that they began to live in isolation. It began immediately. They go and they hide from the presence of the Lord. And they begin, in many ways, to recognize their own differences. And you see that by the way that they covered themselves with loincloths. And then God would come and, and he would say, I see what you've done and you're hiding from me. And as a result of what they had chosen to do, God would usher in a handful of consequences. In verse 16, he would tell the woman, listen, childbearing is now going to be difficult for you. It is going to be uh, multiplied pain in your childbearing. And not only that, you're also going to strive for your husband and he's going to rule over you. And so in God's family, he says, listen, the husband is going to be uh, the leader of God's family and you're going to strive, you're going to contend for his leadership role and you're going to want to fight for that. And that's a part of the struggle that's found in our isolation and in our differences. And then he looks to the man and he says, listen, and now working is going to be difficult in verses 17 through 19. You're going to strive in your labor and you're going to have difficulties in your work. You're not going to enjoy it. There's going to be thorns and thistles and difficulty. And besides that, you're also going to return to the dust in which you came from. And so as I breathe uh, into you from the dust and I created you, it is to dust that you will return. And so death will be imminent for all of creation. And then he says this in his provision in verse 21. He says, I'm going to remove the loincloth, the very things that you've made for yourself out of fig leaves, and I am going to give you clothing of animal skins. And in verse 22, maybe the most heartbreaking thing that you see in all of your Bible, God banished them from his presence in the Garden of Eden forever. And because the result of their lives being corrupted, because they decided to be wise in their own eyes, now mankind is no longer in right relationship with their creator. And they will strive and contend with one another. They will hide in their isolation and their differences. And they will begin to see not only their flaws, but also the flaws of one another. Which means that as we think about creation, many of us can't trust ourselves, let alone trust other people. And the reality is because we're different. We're not different just in the physical realm. That's true as well. We're created physically different, which is why they go and they hide their differences physically by making clothes for themselves. 
But it goes way beyond that. Not only in that sense, but we're, we're created different physically in this way. That man was created of dirt, which is why we love to do dirty things. It's why guys take off their socks at night and they smell them. It's because we're, we're from dirt. And it's to dust that we'll return. And it's just this weird thing. It's the way we're intrinsically wired. It's why, ladies, you're fashioned, which is why us as men go, I don't enjoy going to look and shop for fashionable things. It's a beating for us. The reality is it's, it's our differences. But it's not just those differences. It's differences in temperaments and personalities and desires and passions. But then it's emotional differences, spiritual differences, intellectual differences. The reality is, is what happened in the garden created a chasm between us and our relationship with God and also our relationship with other people. And because of this difference, the question you have to ask yourself is, what is God's provision? And when you think about that question, you got to ask yourself this question, which is one that most of us have probably never posed. If God brought about some sanctions or some consequences as a result of the fall in Genesis 3, why is it that he never did take away this idea of marriage. Like this gift from God, this, this idea of a covenant-keeping picture, why did he not dissolve that as well? I mean, why did he keep that one thing in place? Why was that so important to him? And here's why. It's because it reminds us of God and his covenant of oneness. And when we think about a God who is one, we have to think about who it is that he is. And, and we would say, as believers in Christ and people within this body, we would recognize that God is a triune God, that he exists as a father, as the son, and as the Holy Spirit. And so we would say there are three equal triune people that exist to work together. And in that, they are one. They act as one. They, um, they work as one. They collaborate as one. All of them are one together, which makes them unified. And unity is something that does not exist a whole lot, a whole lot in the culture we live in. Could we agree with that? And so here it is, we, we have this institution of marriage because it points to oneness, oneness that exists within the Godhead. Let me show you how. They're unified. Everything they do, they are unified. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit work together. Now they do so because they're all equal. There's equality within the Godhead. Even though the Father is the architect of everything we see and know, the Son is the one who came along and created. He's the builder of everything we see and know. The Son was willing also to, to lessen Himself in order that He would go away, that the Helper would come, the Holy Spirit. All of them have their different roles. That's diversity. And yet they seem to, to in, in a sense, always work together and there's order, not chaos. They order themselves in this way, that the Father, as the architect of all that we see and know, the one who sits on the throne, was willing to send His Son on our behalf. The Son is willing to drink the cup of wrath, the judgment of God, pay the penalty of sinners like you and me on behalf of the oneness of God. And so He gladly submits to the Father. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm, not, I'm, I'm greater than someone. Matter of fact, he, even, he lessens Himself not only to go to the cross and die, but he also lessens himself in this way. That he says, hey guys, it's best that I go away. As he tells his disciples to believe in God. Believe also in me. He goes, I'm going to go and prepare a place. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. But I go and I prepare a place. I'll come back and receive it unto myself. 
but I'm going to go and be with the Father. Then later on, he'll say, and I'm going to send a more suitable helper for you, the Holy Spirit, the one who, who lives in the house that was designed by God and built by his son. And that's us, spiritual houses. And so there's a role there of oneness. You see that demonstrated? Now, the reason that's important is because you've got to begin to think through it in light of those things, that God displays himself in those ways. And if he does, then it brings about the importance of the institution of marriage. Matter of fact, when Jesus was asked by some of the religious leaders of the law and the times of the Israelites, they were Pharisees or Sadducees, uh, they asked him a question. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce? Matter of fact, they've seen it uh, in their own times and in the days of Moses. And in their curiosity, it spurs Jesus to recognize the institution that God had created in Genesis 2 that we had just read about. But I love what Jesus says. Look at it. He says this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, say it with me, one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Because God's math, one plus one equals one. And he says, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the reason that we have this idea of oneness, and it exists in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is because God wanted to demonstrate his love and his unity and his oneness to his creation in this, this institution of marriage. See, instead of reading the institution of marriage in the way that we just read it, Perhaps we should think of it like this. There is a father who would send his son to be united to his bride, the church, gladly, willingly, dedicated to her that they shall become one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. The reason that God has established, created, and kept the institution of marriage is because marriage points to the Godhead. The Father who gladly sent His Son. And He says, Son, you're going to leave the Father and you're going to go cling to your bride, the church. And you're going to live with her. And you're going to honor her. And you're going to keep her. And you're going to provide for her. And you're going to restore her. Because that's what men who love Jesus do. And he was an example of oneness to the bride of Christ, the church, believers in him. And he goes, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. The idea is, is that oneness can be found in a relationship to God. And that's why you see Jesus leave his father to cling to his wife, the bride. Matter of fact, the next wedding that we're at and a pastor begins to share those words, we ought to immediately think about our heavenly father who sends his son to unite to us as the bride of Christ, the church. That's what the institution is about. It's relatable to us because it points to oneness which means that God wants us to be one with him. If we're the church, the people of God, and he dwells in us, he desires that we would be one with him. And if we're one with him, the same thing that's true of a triune God can be true for us. Matter of fact, let's look at the idea of unity, equality, order, and diversity. 
I'm going to put it for you back up on the screen real quickly. And I, this time, we're not going to think of it in the sense of the way that we would think about it with oneness with God, but I want you to think of it in terms of oneness within the bride of Christ, God's church. See, God takes lots of different people. Galatians 3 would say he takes Greeks and slaves and free. He takes Jews, Gentiles alike. Uh, he takes um, all different types of people, uh, brown, yellow, black, white. And he goes, I can make you one under Christ, which makes us unified to God. And so their unity should exist along the local church. Now, a lot of us grew up in church and we're like, I've never seen unity in the church. I've never seen God's people get along. And the reason why you would say is because people don't seem to be equal. It seems like there's always people that have greater responsibilities or roles or titles, which is one of the reasons that I don't care what you call me. The only thing I would ask you not to call me is to call me reverend or some explicit name in which you might identify me by. I would prefer not that. But the reality is you just call me by my name because there's not an elevation in the priesthood. The reality is we are all God's children. We're all equal, working together for the common good of being God's people in service to our King. All ambassadors, all heirs, all children, all sheep to one great shepherd. The idea is that we are to be unified and we're all equal. And yet there's this idea of order, which means we gladly submit to one another. That in all of our diversity, not just the way we're wired, not just our passions, not just our vocations and the very things, the traits that we've learned over the years, but even in the way that we're wired uh, in, in our gifting, spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all of those things are to work together for the common good. And that is for the bride, us, people of God, to support our husband, to be the hands and the feet, the service of God. We are to be one with God just as God is one with himself. Comprende? So let me explain it to you this way. Jesus would say these words in a variety of different places. But in John chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he's talking about the flock as a shepherd, the people of God. And this is what he says. My father who has given them to me, meaning the church, the bride, us. In this case, it's talking about sheep. Because he's given them to me and is greater than all of them. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand because I and the Father are, what does it say? One. So here's, here's what he's saying. He goes, listen, God the Father sent the Son to leave the Father to cling to his bride. What God has put together, let no man separate. Jesus says it this way, what God has given me, I will not lose. Why? Because they're in my hand and the Father's hand is greater than mine and nothing can snatch them out. Why? Because when we are re restored under Christ, we are His. And it means that nothing can change that. We cleave to our good husband because he's perfect in every way. And he seals us for the day of redemption. John chapter 14, Jesus says it this way. Or I'm sorry, uh, John says it this way as he was speaking about Jesus and what he says. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So Jesus goes, I and the Father are one. And because I'm in you and you are in me, we are one. And to be one with God means that you have been one with your bride, Jesus. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus says... Uh, 
as a reminder of this, as Paul writes to the church of Cor- in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, the idea is this, is what was originally broken in Eden, us running and hiding in our isolation and our differences. God says, because I am one and I want to demonstrate what the covenant of marriage really looks like, I want to make my creation one with the Father. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a great picture of that, that God would come and he would, he would die for us, that the old would go away and the new would come. The idea is we can be a new creation in Christ. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. The idea is that we can be one with God. And here's what I need you to know this. If you are not one with God, you will never be one with another person. Matter of fact, I would go further to say this. If you are married in this day and age, in this time, you have a spouse, whether they're with you or not with you, there will be contention and striving and difficulty in your marriage if you are not both one with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, simply because you spend all your time covering your differences and looking out for yourself. The only way that marriage and the institution reflected in the scriptures can work if our two people are willing to reconcile to our Heavenly Father and our Creator through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's four keys that you need to know today that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, whether we're single or married in this room, that you need to know because it impacts the way you and I think about marriage. Matter of fact, I'll go on to say this. If these four things are not true for anyone you are thinking about dating, then you should not date them. So if you're single in the room, all the women in the house that are single, you better get your notebooks out because I'm about to teach you a lesson. Parents, I'm not kidding. You, you better say, hey, get your phone out. You better start writing because these are important. Listen, I'm about to show you why our society is so broken. I'm about to show you why it is that in this room, so many of us have struggled and contended in our marriages. It's because we don't understand them. And so let's write. Let's think. Let's ponder. Let's take pictures as we go. Whatever it takes. We'll provide message notes on, on the Stone Point News tomorrow. If you don't have a Stone Point News, you can go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash stonepointnews. Register will be in your inbox tomorrow afternoon. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is the one who restores oneness, and he does so by restoring life. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what does that mean? How does he restore life? Well, he restores life by being our death. He's the one who shows us what it looks like to be life. Matter of fact, you might think, well, life is not found in Jesus. Life can be found in other individuals. And so you might even say words like this. Oh, I love my husband because he completes me. And if you've said those words, then you've either not been married very long or you're not being honest with yourself. (laughs) The reality is, is the scripture would teach us that no human being on the planet can complete another human being. You might say it or even see somebody say it this way, I've married my soulmate. The scriptures do not teach that you and I have ever married a soulmate because in order for them to be our soulmate, they must be able to redeem our souls. And what I want you to understand is that there are no redeeming qualities about ourselves. 
we do not have life and we cannot give life. Matter of fact, the scripture would say we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And that means if we are dead in our sins, it means that we are dead to ourselves. We hide in isolation and our darkness and we cannot give anything but isolation and darkness and a lack of trust away. But if we have, again, given life, it's been restored to us, then we can give a reflection of that life. But the reality is, is this, is the more we think about one another, the closer we get to one another, the more we'll see our brokenness. The reality is this. I had a guy recently share with me. He goes, man, I've always wondered what it would be like to hang out with you or, or like be in your mind a little bit. Because he's like, you know, I, I, I kind of look up to you a little bit. And this is what I told him. I said, listen, the minute you get around me, the minute you're going to be disappointed. The closer you get to me, the more you're going to recognize how fallible I am, how foolish I am, how prone to leave the God I am. And the reality is, is because I'm a mere mortal. I'm a man like you. And because I hold the title pastor, does that does not make me superior to you. We just learned that I'm actually equal to everyone in this room. I just have a different gifting. And I use that gifting to spur on our church. But the reality is, is in my equality with you, I'm still messed up, broken, prone to hide in my differences and in darkness. But it's because of life that I don't have to do that anymore. It's because in life and through Jesus' life, I don't have to live in the dark. 1 John 1. Matter of fact, Jesus would say this about himself. Um, and, and John would say this about himself as well in terms of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, meaning Jesus. And in that life was the light of men. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28. Hey, if you want to marry, hey, you're not going to sin by going and marrying. And if you're a betrothed woman, okay, you marry, you're not going to sin either. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Why will you and I have worldly troubles? Because of the fall. Because, because of the fall, we're not one with God and we cannot be one with one another until God restores us and gives us life. And so what I'm saying is, is this, is if you do not know Jesus Christ, your marriage will not be the fullness of what it intended to be in the scriptures. I'll go a step further. If you are married to someone who does not know Jesus Christ, Paul would say, as he wrote to the church of Corinth, is that you are unequally yoked, which simply is a, is a concept in that day and time that people would relate to because many of them were farmers or they relate in that way. What he's saying is, is, could you imagine being a farmer in a field yoked to two oxen and one of them wants to plow this away and one of them wants to plow this away? That would be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? And he goes, listen, you should think about that in the local church. The reason we have identified measures in the local church, the things we believe in, is so we yoke ourselves together in the same direction. That's why we have membership. But even then, the reason that we should think about marriage the way that God intends us to in terms of oneness is because we don't want to yoke ourselves to people that are going different directions. So he goes, Jesus is the one who restores life. Well, listen, Jesus doesn't just restore life. Get this, lean in with me. He covers our shame. The very things that we've been running from, the very things that we're insecure about. Ladies, the very time you look in that mirror and you go, I got to keep working out because I got to shed a few pounds. Listen, that's not from your heavenly father. That's from your flesh, your insecurities, your shame, and from the covenant that was broken in Eden. 
And because of our insecurities and our shame, we live in that state of always trying to measure up, always trying to do more, always trying to be more. And that's not just for ladies, is it, men? There's many of us men that in our 60s, we still see ourselves as a broken 13-year-old boy looking for a father. And here's what you need to know is Jesus came and he died to cover your shame. The reason that he died, he shed his blood, is so that we could experience Passover, that we could have a freedom in him, that we no longer had to walk around in isolation and confusion and chaos or darkness, but that we could be one with someone else as God intended in the picture of marriage. The challenge is is that we have not seen that sanctifying work and we haven't thought about that. But the reason that we see nakedness and shame is a result of our sin. The way that nakedness and shame is covered is through the blood of Christ and a restoration to our Heavenly Father through the life and the death of Him who died. His name is Jesus and Him is light and in Him is life. He is the life of men. He's the light of men. That's who we're talking about, which means that Jesus wants to restore us and reconcile us to God, that we no longer have to hide in that shame. Galatians 3, 26 and 3, uh, 27 says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Look at that. You've put on Christ. You've been clothed in Christ if you know him, if your life's been restored to him. Think through that. Ephesians 2, 13, Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. You've been covered by Christ. You got that? You see the coverings? See, it was a provision in Genesis 3, 21 that you would give him skins. Now he goes, hey, I'm going to go further than that. I'm going to cover you by the righteous blood of Christ. I'm going to robe you with the royalty of Christ. You're going to be an heir of your heavenly father. Oh, wow, what an incredible God. It just blows my mind. What an awe and wonder moment. Which means that God cares about clothing, actually. He cares about clothing. He cares about how you're clothed in in your life and your character. Paul writes to the church of Colossae, and all Colossians 3 is talking about putting on the clothes of Christ. That's what it's talking about. But in verses 8 through 10, he says this, but now put away all these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Hey, don't lie to one another, seeing that you put off the self with his practices. Hey, don't do all the things that you used to do in your brokenness and your shame. Hey, you only lie because you're trying to cover something up. You only lie because you're insecure. You only lie because you're looking out for yourself. He goes, don't do those anything anymore. Why? Because now you can put on Christ, the new self. And because we put on Christ, guess what? He goes, you should be renewed in knowledge after its image of the creator. Because you can be restored to your right relationship with God. Why? Because Jesus gives life and he covers our shame. Church, that's when we say amen. Amen. Like praise the Lord. But then we think about him concerned about our clothing. I think that's why Paul writes 1 Timothy um, to to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is why we have these words. And, And these are words that depending on your background, you've read before or you know, or it may even make you cringe or in some ways it may give you satisfaction. But I will tell you, I think this is the best meaning of it. In 1 Timothy 2, he says this, I desire then that every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why? Because that's what men who have been restored do. They offer prayers and they lift their hands and praise to God and they do so without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. 
with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, not with gold, not with pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, if you've come from some conservative backgrounds or some of our more fundamental thinkers in this room, you think, hey, I, I, you have to be clothed in this way because that's what the Scripture's teaching. Here's what I really think the Scripture is implying. Listen to me very carefully. The way we clothe ourselves either points to ourselves or it points to a sanctifying and redeeming quality about the one who clothed us. And if we've been clothed in Christ, then the things that we wear and the things that are behind the motivation of the things we wear either point to us in our brokenness and our shame and in our hiding, or they point to our Heavenly Father, the one who sanctified and clothed us in His compassion. So my point and my emphasis is this, is that the point of all of this is that women in this room would think through proper attire that points to modesty and a changed heart that reflects good works for your king. Which I would say this, husbands, if you really love your wives, you should protect them from what they wear on skimpy beaches. The reason why is because every time we adorn ourselves with apparel that promotes us and reflects into the people around us, the more we take away from the gospel narrative, the one who wants to be one with us, restored us, and clothed us. And so the point of us living in modesty with proper attire is so that it points back to our creator. Now listen, I'll tell you this, men, ladies, what you do in the bedroom as you become naked and unashamed is promoted in the kingdom of God. And we should do that well. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks in intimacy. But we need to be thinking about what it looks like to an outside world as we clothe ourselves with modesty and good works. Real quickly, FYI, we have Stone Point Kids available because in the coming weeks you might need it. Okay? Do you understand what we're talking about? The implication of us being clothed in Christ is huge, which is not where he stops. Jesus also teaches us to serve. Listen, in our brokenness and our shame, we look out for ourselves. I look out for me apart from Jesus in me, which is one of the reasons that leads to fights and quarrels. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 20, uh, even in the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The reason that Jesus came was to give himself up, to die, to be a servant to all, which means that we should model that. Listen, if we're always living in isolation apart from God's people and apart from our spouse, then it means that it produces naturally selfish things. And we are selfish beings without being restored and covered by Christ which means that all of our relationships are difficult, let alone the one that we live in the most close proximity to, which points to the covenant that has been broken. And here's the reality is we will watch out for ourselves unless we have the Spirit's help. And only those who know Christ, who have been forgiven by Christ, who have been restored into a right relationship with Him, have been given life and have been covered by His blood are the only ones that have the help of the Holy Spirit, the one who makes us one with God and the one who desires to make us one with one another. And so we need his help to serve one another. And then Jesus also teaches us sacrifice. He's the one who teaches us what death looks like. Philippians 2 is a great example of that, but Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus says, Father, 
If you are willing, would you remove this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going, Lord, if there's been any other way, if I don't have to die for the sins of these people, Lord, if there's any other way, but Lord, let me do what you want me to do. He gladly submits himself to death, even death to the cross, Philippians 2. He does that because he wants us to understand the sacrificial nature of what it takes to give life and to cover people and to serve people. And so he's sacrificial. And I would ask this question, are you sacrificial? Do you daily die to yourself for the sake of God and for the sake of other people? Or are you selfish? Are you always watching out for you or are you watching out for others? The best example I could give it because it relates to my kids is if there is one sprinkled donut amongst three, who's going to get the sprinkled donut? You better believe it. I'm looking out for me. But what it looks like is to say, you know what? I'll give that away. And that's a redeeming quality that's not found in many people because we are apart from Christ. It's about daily dying for others. It's about forgiveness and patience and forbearance with others. See, quite frankly, the reason that we have watered down the idea of marriage is because we've never realized that marriage is about a God sending his son to be united with his bride, the church, the people of God, to restore us in right relationship with him. Which the implication of that is that if you have been restored by God, by his grace, it means, husbands, you are a picture and a model of Jesus. Which means you shouldn't ask your wife to go out and skimpy attire for the sake of your own passions and pursuits in public because you're not covering her with grace. You're actually exposing her to a wicked world, which is crazy. Why would I as a man want to love my wife in the way of saying, hey, will you put this on so that all the men here can look at you? That would be foolish, right? Because God covers us with his grace. It's the measure of love and service. It is an act of saying, I want to care for you. I want to promote you. I want to lift you up. I want to respect you. I want to honor you. Listen, men, one of the reasons that our sons don't respect our wives is because we don't respect them. We don't honor them. We are not very good at looking and acting like Jesus. Ladies, the same way, you are a picture of the bride of Christ, which means that you have been adorned with clothing, a good works, which means you ought to be respectable in all that you do. You ought to revere Christ and you ought to respect and follow your husband's lead. That is, if he's submitting to Christ himself. If he's loving you like Christ intended you to be loved, then you should have no problem coming along and being in the hands and feet. You should be a servant. You should respect him, honor him, care for him, cherish him, love him, keep him. Why? Because what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, our marriage in oneness with God and one another is a picture to the world of a God who loved us and gave himself for us. It is a gospel witness. And if you are not one with your spouse, the goal is, is to begin right, re- rightly restored to God and begin working to be rightly restored with one another. And that only happens when you love God first. I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis says this. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, the second is like it. We love others more than we love ourselves. And listen, our closest neighbor is the one we are yoked to our spouse. If our spouse doesn't know Jesus, we should be praying that they come to know him. If we both know Jesus, we should begin acting as if we know Jesus. Why? Because oneness was a design by God intended for us to live in. What a pleasure.
May we do that well. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. We pray, God, that you would help us to cherish and love your church, love one another, because you have loved us and demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Christ to die for us. And Father, I pray that we would be a picture of grace to one another. I pray that even in our marriages, that we would would reflect the life that's been given to us by salvation, that you have covered us, that you have sanctified us, you've cared for us, and you desire for us to know you and to be covered by you, which means we should think about what it looks like to cover one another in marriage. I pray you would help us to serve one another and become sacrificial, that we would not put ourselves first, but we would put others first. We need your help because that's what oneness looks like. And we know that in our sin, in our shame, and in our nakedness, that we are not one until you do a work in our lives to restore us to you. So God, would you do that? We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.